Blessed Lord, who caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. So good to see you all here this morning. If you would, go ahead and turn with me to our New Testament lesson from 1 Peter chapter 4. If you're visiting with us, uh, we're in the middle of a series in this first letter of Peter to the Christians who lived in what is now modern-day Turkey. And he's writing with them with the express purpose so that they might stand firm in the true grace of God because they were facing cultural and social pressure to give up their love and allegiance to King Jesus. And so we're picking back up in the middle of this sermon series here in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And once you find your way there to our passage, notice how our lesson begins in verse 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Why arm? Well, if you remember back to chapter 2, verse 11, Peter has said, and this is when this is the turning point in, in his letter, where he's getting to the practical bits of what it looks like, what the true grace of God looks like in action in our lives. And the first thing he says is abstain from the passions of the flesh. And why? He says, because they wage war against your soul. They are engaged in a military campaign uh, to bring about death in your life to bring your demise about. And so here he says, arm yourselves with that same way of thinking that Christ had. So what was or what is this Christ way of thinking? Uh, We've talked about it at length, I think, last week. Uh, Let's hear it from a different voice, uh, the voice of Paul, Philippians chapter 2. You'll know this passage well, beginning in verse 5. It has many similarities Have this mind among yourselves, right? Have this same way of thinking. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Well, that's a reference back to the Garden of Eden, grasping after the fruit. He did not consider his own equality with God, his own divine nature, something to be taken advantage of for his own purposes. Rather... He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, taking on human flesh, and being found in human form, he further humbles himself. He further humbles himself by becoming obedient, that's obedience to the divine will, to the Father's will, all the way to the point of death, even death on the cross. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him. And bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, self-denial, this is the way of thinking of Jesus. Self-denial and suffering for the sake of God and for others precedes in God's wisdom, not man's wisdom, but in God's wisdom, exaltation honor, glory, and praise. As we saw last week, Peter in chapter 3 is desiring to prepare us 
for suffering that he believes will likely come when we live out the way that characterizes the kingdom of God. That's coming on earth as it is in heaven. That way that we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And one of the ways, we saw two last week, but one of the ways that Peter prepares us for suffering is to situate our lives within this overarching true story of God in creation that finds its climax in the victory of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, but it's a victory through the suffering of the cross. Remember, suffering precedes glory. And Peter wants us to know deep down in our souls and in our bones even that what is true for Jesus is true for us. What is true for Jesus is true for us. So in his life, Jesus' life, suffering, trial, and testing preceded glory, honor, and praise. Then we have every confidence that if that is true for his life, that will be true in our lives as well. We'll follow that same trajectory. Now you might think that that doesn't sound like great news. But this is ultimately good and comforting news because it means that suffering pain, even death, do not have the final word in our lives. Rather, the praise, glory, and honor that will be ours at the return of Christ, those things have the final word, praise, honor, and glory. So this is Jesus' way of thinking that Peter refers to here. Suffering as a result of denying oneself to follow God's will and for the sake of others, that suffering precedes glory. Isn't this Jesus' example to us in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prayed in agony? If you remember that, that lesson from Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is there in the garden, and he is just, I mean, the text portrays it as him with tears. Well, not tears, but, but perspiration of blood. The agony of his, of his prayer there in the garden, and he gives this prayer in light of his imminent suffering. He says, my father, if it be possible, we don't desire to suffer. Jesus didn't desire to suffer. Father, if it be possible, let this cup, that's referring to his rejection, his beatings, his trials, and his crucifixion. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You see, Jesus' way of thinking in which suffering precedes glory produces a threefold pattern. Did you hear it there? One, it begins with resolve. Nevertheless, I, I wish it wasn't like this. If it's possible, let it pass from me. But nevertheless, even in the face of it, I will say, this is the second part of the pattern, no. No to my own will. And in that third pattern, part of the pattern, yes. Yes to your will, Father. So there's a resolve, a commitment to say no to my own will. This is Jesus' example, his pattern that springs out of this way of thinking and to say yes to the Father's will. And this way of thinking is ultimately restorative and healing in our world. Jesus' no to his own will and yes to the Father's in the Garden of Gethsemane mends it mends and it restores the wounds that were opened up and created by Adam's yes to his own will and no to God the Father's will when he received the fruit. You see, Jesus' pattern here of resolve and saying no to self and yes to God's will restores what was broken by the opposite pattern. 
So Peter here strongly encourages us to have the same way of thinking, that like Jesus says no to our own will, no to those disordered passions within us, and yes to the Father's will, and is resolved to do so even if it brings suffering, discomfort, or pain in our lives. And that's a hard word to hear, but we have to hear it in the context of Jesus' life, that ultimately it is good news, it's a restorative word. It's one that brings healing. And I know it's hard to hear it in the midst of suffering, and that's why Peter wants to prepare us before we enter that season of our lives. But ultimately, this is what Peter calls us to. Look again at verses 1 through 2, and notice the pattern present here. Resolve. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. There's this kind of preparation, this commitment Someone who's been armed and is ready for battle is is committed to the task. They're resolved for it. Arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That just simply means that if you're willing to choose suffering over choosing to sin, sin no longer has reign in your life. You are free from sin. It's a demonstration of your freedom in Christ. That speaks to a profound resolve that we are to have following the resolve of Jesus. And then picking back up, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions. So we have this resolve. We say no to human passions. We We no longer need to live. We are no longer bound or enslaved to live to these human passions. And that's not, that's not passions appropriately ordered to God. Those are good desires that have been distorted by our sinful nature, distorted as a result of Adam's yes to his own will and no to God's. And then finally, that threefold pattern, so as to live for the rest of this life for the will of God. Yes to the Father. Do you see it there? Do you see it present? This way of thinking, suffering precedes glory, that produces this pattern of life, Resolve that leads us to say no to our own passions that are twisted and disordered and yes to the Father's will is for Peter the foundation. I think this might be surprising to us. It is the foundation for genuine love of God and neighbor. For genuine love of God and neighbor. I think when we hear at times, I know this is how it struck me, every time I enter these passages where it's no, 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 yes, That no bit reminds me of my childhood when it was like, no, 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 where it was emphasized. You know, we might, you might have grown up in a similar background where we might call it like a legalistic background. The the things that you were not to do, those were things that were always emphasized. We might hear that and shut it down when we hear that in scripture or we hear it preached. But Peter says that saying no to our our twisted and disordered passions and desires and saying yes to the Father's will is something far more profound than than a legalism. It is actually the bedrock foundation to true and genuine and real, authentic love for God and for neighbor in this world. Just look there first at the love for God that's presented in this passage. We love God. This is the way we love God. By denying ourselves, by saying no to our own wills, our own disordered passions, and saying yes to his. Look there at verse 3. For the time that is past suffices 
for doing what the Gentiles, when he says Gentiles here, he's not talking about the ethnic group. He's talking in a theological frame about those who do have not given their love or loyalty to King Jesus. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Peter begins here by saying, in essence, look, enough is enough. You have already spent enough of your life devoted to these things, to living your life according to these disordered passions. You should put all that behind you for good. Be done with them. Choose the other way. Choose suffering if it, if it takes that. Choose suffering over these things. Why? Because the vices described here all issue. They come from a way of thinking that is at odds with the way of Jesus' thinking. And they're at odds with Jesus' way of thinking because they're ultimately directed toward self-gratification. They're ultimately directed toward self-gratification and not the self-denying pursuit of God's will for the sake of others that we encounter in the Garden of Gethsemane. Each one of those, we can look at them. And these are not the only things. If Peter, there would not be enough room in the letter for Peter to list everything. You can go to Paul. He gives other lists. You know this. This is anything that emerges from a, a, a motivation that is self-gratifying, self-interested. Remember Philippians 2? He did not grasp even the divine nature that was his as something to be taken advantage of for his own self-interest, but for the sake of others and for obedience to the Father's will, he, comes and he becomes incarnate and humbles himself, taking on the form of a servant, dying a cursed death on a tree for you and for me. All the vices that Peter identifies here involve unrestrained desires for sex, food, and drink. Each of these vices refer to practices that have in common a lack of self-control. And you might remember from passages like Galatians chapter 5 that self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. But all of these come from a lack of self-control, a character flaw leading to behaviors that are self-destructive a self-destructive violation of God's standards, his law, and are ultimately harmful to others. We don't, I don't need to tell you the truth of this. You know it. You've experienced a relationship. Maybe you were at the, the root of the problem where your own self-gratifying desires led you to act in ways that were ultimately destructive for you and for those around you. We've all been a part of relationships like that. We've all seen at least those happening around us. We know we know what it is when someone seeks their own good over everyone else around them. How ultimately destructive that is. These practices and, and the passion that gives rise to them are destructive and harmful to others in this way. These disordered passions promote what we could call a utilitarian impulse that views people or treats people, turns people into objects of self-gratification and even creation as well. Neither are treated with their God-given dignity as the image of God or as God's good creation to be enjoyed for his glory, but enjoyed for our own selfish ends. So to love God, to love God then means to turn from such disordered human passions, passions that destroy life in others and in creation by means of self-gratifying practices. That's how we turn to God. This is the structure of the Ten Commandments. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. 
Do not worship anything else. Not even yourself. Do not make graven images. Do not use my name in vain. And then what does he do in the second half of the Ten Commandments? He turns then to love of other. Make this your constant prayer this week and and even the months to come. Ask God to reveal to you where you are pursuing whatever end it is out of selfish gratification, out of self-gratification, whether it's in thought, word, or deed. And then repent in prayer and in action. Turn from them. Why? Why do all that? Well, not, not only just because it loves God, because this turning to God, this way of loving God, turning from our own self-gratifying desires actually opens us up to love others genuinely. It actually turns us outside of ourselves and turns us towards others in true and genuine love. Love that, love that embodies the love of Jesus that we see in the garden. Now remember, we're looking at how Jesus' way of thinking, suffering preceding glory, produces a general pattern of life, resolve to say no to our own will and yes to the Father's, that is the foundation for genuine love for God and for others. Now that's where we're turning to now. Look with me then at verses 7 through 10. Listen to the love for one another that's encouraged here. The end of all things is at hand. So in light of, of the return of Jesus, in light of the end of all things, in light of the coming judgment even, that's referenced in verses 5 through 6, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So your prayers won't be hindered. Not only that, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. We love others, family, whether that's baptismal or biological, friends, neighbors, whomever we encounter in this world. We love others by arming ourselves with self-control and sober-mindedness. That's another way of grasping Jesus' way of thinking. By denying ourselves and seeking their ultimate good, even if it's costly, even if it's costly, even if it brings discomfort or even suffering, That's Peter's point here. We love God in that way. We follow his will, even if it costs us rejection. Remember verse 4, we didn't go into it, but verse 4 says, when you live like this, when you give up these things, the people around you are going to say, why the heck are you not doing what, what we're doing? Because that rejection is in itself is going to be received as a condemnation. And I think we feel that in a month like this that if we don't get on board with what's going around us, that we feel condemned, or, or the people that see us not enjoying or not celebrating this month of pride, they feel like that's a condemnation in itself. We know what that's like. And so loving God is costly. It can bring discomfort. And likewise, loving others with the same kind of love that Jesus has shown us is costly. It can bring discomfort. It can bring profound joy and satisfaction, but it can also bring Comfort or discomfort. So look at those three things. We will love one another earnestly. Earnestly. Our love is first to be real, earnest, sincere, genuine. And second is to be relational. We love one another. Each one of these 
Love, hospitality, service are all directed to one another, directed towards others, outside of ourselves and selfish gratification and directed towards others. It's relational. It's a love that's focused on others and not a love curved in on ourselves. And here, the last part of that love is here's the power of it that God calls us to in Christ, the power of love that we can experience in Christ. Peter says it covers a multitude of sins. Well, that might make us feel a little uncomfortable. Now, Peter, and I hope all of you here as Christians know fully well that the blood of Jesus is what atones and what covers our sins. So what then is Peter, assuming Peter as the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ is not saying something contrary to the rest of Scripture, what is Peter saying? Peter is saying that earnest love in the way of Jesus, and one, based upon an analogy here, takes the oxygen out of sin. The way uh, some fire suppression systems suffocate a fire. You know, some, of the, some things that are made for, for fire suppression will cover the fire and suck all the oxygen out of it. Your love, when it's in the way of Jesus, has this power over sin. It takes all the oxygen away from it and snuffs it out. Not only in your own life, but it begins to be an agent for that in the lives of others. You see, our love is not disconnected from sin, whether our own or that of others. The love in which we give to one another is enhanced as we turn away from self-directed, self-gratifying ways of life and embrace self-denying servanthood in the way of Jesus. If you've been in a relationship, whether a marriage or a friendship or a a parental uh, relationship, and the person that you've been in that has loved you at the expense of their own good, they've given everything to you, They, they love you, because that's what's right, even above themselves, you know how powerful that love is. We know that. Additionally, as we love one another in the way of Jesus, it unlocks the shackles that enslave the hearts and minds of others to those self-gratifying ways of life. And it does this by revealing in tangible ways the life of God's coming kingdom. So often the good news of Jesus finds a hearing because of the love of his people. A love that is poured out at great expense. A love that denies ourselves and seeks the good of others. It produces those taste and see moments. Those kinds of like, I don't know, what was that all about? That's odd. I want to know more. I want to know, I want to be loved more like that. And then finally, so or not finally, but secondly here, arming ourselves with Christ's way of thinking also means that we show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Peter says it's not just, you know, not just hospitality, but to do it without grumbling. When the people leave your house, it's just like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad that's over. Um, you might have had those moments. I'm not saying I have, but, um, and certainly not with any of you. Maybe a past church I've been at, but not, not you guys. Never. The hospitality of Peter's day was a strategic, it was of strategic importance for those who traveled. Generally speaking, there was not hotels or motels in which to say, rather a traveler would head to the center of a town and hope, throw his, his life on the good graces of a kind resident of that town who would take him in for the night, him or her in for the night, to dwell, to feed them, to give them lodging. 
But this isn't the type of hospitality we're going to be able to experience here, largely. That's not our societal patterns. People don't go to the center of town looking for someone to put them up for the night when they're traveling through. That's not the case. So what does hospitality then look like for us? Well, at the core, it's the same. It's still a giving of ourselves to others. That's what's at the core of hospitality. So if you see a new face, we have some new faces in here this morning. So if you see a new face at church, warmly introduce yourself to them. Maybe invite them out for lunch this day after the church service. If someone new moves into your neighborhood, go over, shockingly, how scary that is, and introduce yourself warmly to them, not coldly, but warmly, and invite them over for dinner or for a drink on the porch. Ask them if they need help with anything as they settle in, if they need to know where to take their kids or where the best restaurants are in the neighborhood. And if you're nervous to do that, to, to invite strangers into your home or to take them out for lunch, invite someone in this church that you don't know very well, someone you assume is safe to invite over. Invite them over for dinner or maybe out for a coffee. Remember, the church is indeed the schoolhouse of love, and so we can learn these patterns of love within our own community here, of love, earnest, sincere love and hospitality. The key to hospitality, though, is to begin. It can't be programmatic. We can't set up a program for you to be hospitable. You just need to begin. Step out with something, somewhere, invite folks, welcome them, a warm hello to folks you encounter at the store, baking cookies once a week, maybe just to intentionally give them away to folks you encounter in your neighborhood. Maybe it's inviting a coworker over who is in crisis to love and comfort them, maybe to share a meal with them. Maybe it's inviting a student from one of the universities. We have four universities in this city. Maybe it's inviting a student over for a meal, a home-cooked meal. You know, there's, if you want to might meet students, just go to Trader Joe's. There's a, there's, a, there's a thousand students there every week. You'll encounter them. Strike up a conversation with them. Invite them over. Be hospitable, Christ Church. And then finally, Peter here, when we're armed with Jesus' way of thinking, we can serve others with the gifts that God gives us out of his grace. God has uniquely, and this is, I hope you've heard me say this before, because I'll say it over and over again. God has uniquely equipped each one of you with gifts. This is what Paul clearly teaches in 1 Corinthians 12. Each member of the body has been uniquely equipped, equipped with gifts for the sake of others, for the life of the body. Some of these gifts express themselves in speaking the truth of God to others in love and gentleness. That's what Peter goes on in verse 11 to say. And others of these gifts are demonstrated in acts of service that can only be empowered by the strength that God gives. But in each case, whether it's gifts that require speaking or gifts that require service, both are oriented and empowered by God, right? And that can only be true in our lives when we love God turning away from our own will, saying yes to the Father's will, being resolved to do so no matter the cost, so that we can receive these gifts of the Father and express them, demonstrate them within the life of this community and this church and more broadly within this city. The result of such service is that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That is the purpose for which we have been made, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, if you don't know what gifts you have, ask the person who knows you best. 
they most likely will tell you your gifts. Ask people in this church who know you well. They'll be able to tell you these gifts. You can always, novel idea, ask God to reveal it more clearly to you. We can pray about it. You can come to me or Father David or any other priest here at this church and we'll help you and discern alongside you through prayer what God has equipped you with. And maybe if you haven't gone through confirmation, when you receive confirmation and the bishop lays his hands upon you and prays for the Holy Spirit to equip you anew, you might receive a new gift for the sake of his kingdom and for the sake of our world. And when you find your gifts, use them within this church family, within our community more broadly, remembering that we are only effective to the extent that we exercise these gifts in line with God's truth and his power. All of this will produce in our lives, our homes, and in this church a culture of life, of profound love and satisfaction made tangible by, self, by the self-giving, denying, self-denying, self-giving love of Jesus expressed in our lives for others that will result in God being glorified here in Winston-Salem. And all this will be to him who belongs all glory, honor, and dominion forever and ever. Amen.